Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Everybody is lying about the economy, and I can't stand it anymore. So I'm going to break down what I think people are either lying about or misrepresenting what is actually going on. And also I'm going to talk a little bit more about how I'm personally investing in this economy. Now, this originally appeared on Phil Stutz podcast. So it's Phil Stutz talking to me, but I'm doing most of the describing of what I think is going on in the economy. And I describe my portfolio. I realized I didn't talk about stocks very much, but one stock that I own a good amount of I'll talk about here in this intro is Rap Technologies, WRAP. This is not any kind of like pump and dump. I've owned this for years and I plan on owning this for hopefully 10 years more. So I don't care if people buy it or not. The reason I'm talking about it is because this shows that I almost don't even care what happens in the economy when I plan my investments because I'm long term and I'm looking for what I call moonshots. I'm looking for exponentially growing industries that have the potential to take $1 and turn it into $100. Rap is a company I'm particularly proud of because I consider myself almost a co-founder of it. Essentially, what was happening was I was talking to my friend Scott Cohen. This was around 2016, and I was staying with him for a while. This is when I threw out all my belongings and was living in Airbnbs and also stayed with Scott for a while. Scott's been on this podcast. There was, again, another at that time, police shooting, there was some brutality and somebody died. And we were kind of just thinking out loud, what could be a solution to this? And Scott had worked with an inventor previously. So we called that guy. He had maybe a solution, which is what if you had a device, not a weapon, but a device that shot out a steel cable wrapped around a person who was trying to run away from the police or let's say a mentally ill person who wasn't putting his hands up or whatever, wrapped around the person and held them tight so that if they tried to get out of it, it would get tighter, but it wouldn't hurt them at all. And that was how you restrained someone who the police needed to have restrained. Instead of tasering them, which might kill somebody, or of course shooting them would kill somebody or beating them up, which could kill somebody. So over the years, this device the wrap device was built. The company went public. It's, I think I don't, I don't stay day to day in touch with the company, although I own my initial shares and I expect it to go much higher. This is not investment advice. Of course, it's just my own personal expectations. Of course, with all of the issues happening in 
police news and and police regulations and even in even in this 1.7 trillion dollar spending bill that was just passed there was mention that dollars needs to be put towards developing or buying devices that are non-lethal that's a big part of my portfolio but that's not what this podcast is about this podcast is about the economy what i think of it why i think people are lying about it whether it's the federal reserve or the media or economists or what they're missing I'd be happy to answer any questions about this one as well. You can ask on Twitter, at Jay Altucher. And here we go. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. James, welcome back. The first returning guest on my podcast in two years. You're kidding. I know I've been on your podcast at least once, but we've been on yeah. each other's podcasts or involved in other things so much together. Have I only been on once or have I been on more than once? No, just this, this is once. But I figured this I've been on your once. podcast like... You've been on my podcast like six times. No, like 11. At 11. This you yeah. might be the, the leader right now. Uh, that'd be kind of cool to say that. So I appreciate that. Um, I... I wanted to have you on because uh, I had Michael Hyatt on uh, a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And, you know, we were talking about the economy and how business owners, marketers should be looking at the economy right now. And I was a little bit pessimistic in the interview and he kind of called me out. And he's like, this is not pessimistic times. These are op opportunistic times. It's just how you want to frame it, how you want to look at it. Yeah, there are challenges out there. But, you know, I use the um, the term, this is the opportunity for, this is when people, smart, optimistic investors get richer and pessimistic investors or business owners get poorer. And it just depends on how you look at things. You on your podcast, which is, you know, for everybody out there, it's probably the best business, but also kind of life looking podcast. And I love the the fact that you're focusing on a lot of stories right now. The Cal Fussman's podcast recently was awesome. It was all about Larry oh, King's you. life. I reached out to Cal afterwards. I was like, that was amazing. Like that was a great interview. Cal is such um, a great storyteller and he's a great interviewer. And I find yeah. that the best interviewers are the best interviewees. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's really true. But anyway, so uh, you have your pulse on the economy. You have your pulse on the stock market, um, crypto, what's going on in the world. I just want to have a conversation and kind of just look at it with you. And so hopefully help the people listening out there. And so welcome yeah. to the pod. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And you know, like every week I have a call with some of my subscribers, like let's say about a thousand subscribers, where I answer questions and go over what's going on with the economy. So so not only do I kind of, like everyone else, read a lot or talk to a lot of people about it and try to understand, but I also get a lot of questions. So I see mm. what people are thinking and how people are thinking. And one thing that always both encourages me and discourages me is many people don't look at history. And, and I don't say this in a bad way, like, why should someone really study the causes of sure. the great crash of 1987 or the great depression or the great recession in 2008? You know, I'll give you an example from the election. Everybody was saying to me in the election, it's just 
just the, not the midterms election, but the 2020 election. Many people were saying to me, this is the most important election year ever. So I went to newspapers.com, which is an archive of every newspaper from the past 250 years. And guess what? Every election since 1824, according to the press of that time, was the most important election ever. 1824, 1828, 1832, and on and on. Somebody was saying, this is the most important election ever. And so it makes you think either the importance increased every four years or none of the elections were really the most important ever. So people don't really understand that as, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it, but it rhymes. So like, for instance, yesterday I was on a call and somebody said, asked me, James, are you worried about the debt ceiling? I mean, the U.S. could default on their, their money. That's horrible. The U.S. defaulting, I can't, that's going to be disaster. And I said to them, for 78 years in a row, 78 years in a row, the U.S. has hit the debt ceiling and, has, and Congress has been forced to raise it. And, and every <clears throat> single time the headlines are U.S. might default, you know, government workers might have to stay home. Like they're not going to come to work because there's no money to pay them. The U.S. is broke every single year. And, and then, of course, has, does the U.S. default? No, of course not. They raise the debt ceiling. It happens every year. It's just a, a point where politicians jockey for position. And it's the same thing with the economy. Well, well, hold on. Is this then a media-generated narrative that that comes out and says this is the most important election of all time uh, in order to sell at the maybe 50 years ago newspapers, but today it's to get subscriptions and to get likes and to get uh, views? Yeah, all of the above. And they just don't know. They just say it because there's a new crop of young reporters who no. weren't around for the last 78 times we hit right. the debt ceiling and weren't around for, you know, Jimmy Carter being president. And that was the most important election ever. And, and J Bill Clinton being president. That was the most important. Like they just don't remember or don't know. And that's okay. Like they're focused on other things in their lives. And it's good to have some people around to remind people of history. So for instance, the federal reserve has played a lot of different roles in the economy over the past hundred years. And people remember how, or they read media stories, how in the eighties, Paul Volcker raised interest rates to stop inflation or how in the seventies, right. there might've been stagflation. Could we be on that again? Or Ben Bernanke, he saved the economy with the great recession. Well, did he, or didn't he? I mean, there's a lot of, we could do a whole podcast on that. I won't do that, yeah. but I'm just kind of setting the stage that things aren't always what they seem in the economy. Like right now, do we have inflation or not? Now, yes, prices are six between six and 7% higher right now than they were a year ago. But, you know, if you really look at the numbers, uh, uh, you know, at least in this last month's inflation report, about 60%, so they measure inflation by taking a basket of a whole bunch of things and our sure. prices up or down and they average them together and they do a few more fancy things. Well, guess what? 60% of the things they measure are actually in deflation right now. They're not inflationary at all. So in month over month, it's unclear whether there's inflation, disinflation, meaning there's less inflation or deflation because so many components 
of inflation are deflationary. Okay, here's another thing that's a confusing thing. A recession used to be defined as two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. Well, guess what? How many have we had? We we had two quarters. So technically, I don't know if we're in a recession today, but technically like mid-2022, according to that definition, we're in a recession. But guess what? We weren't really in a recession. A recession also happens. That's like a simple definition of a recession. It's not really the definition. You have to have high unemployment. You have to have people, you know, struggling to make ends meet. Now, yes, there are many people who are struggling to make ends meet, but you have to have an unusually large number of people in that category because they lost, they just lost their job. Okay, then you have, but 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 meanwhile, guess what? Unemployment right now is at a 50-year low right now. So, so, but but then you might say, oh, but Google's laid off 12,000 people. Twitter laid off 7,000 people. Facebook laid off 10,000 people. Where are all these layoffs coming from if if unemployment's at a low? And so all these things have to be put in a simple perspective. The first perspective is a lot of people don't know the history. Second perspective is a lot of people don't really look at the data. They just read the headlines. The third perspective is a lot of people just simply lie. So I'm not going to call any company out, but let's say a company announces that, oh, because of the economy, we're laying off 10,000 people. Guess what? It's an excuse, right? Totally, it's an excuse. They're lying. And I've asked the CEOs of these companies, did you really do this because of the economy or because now was just a good time to fire a whole bunch of people that were useless? Like Jack Dorsey, to his credit, the former CEO of Twitter, he said, look, I'm sorry. I hired too many people at Twitter over the past 10 years. And Elon Musk is simply just getting rid of them. And, but everyone else is saying, oh, the economy, we're hurting. Google's having one of its most profitable years ever. The economy grew last year. Like we're not in a recession at the moment. So you can't blame the economy for your layoffs. Like the economy at the moment is still growing. Is the unemployment, is the fact that people are back in the job market twofold? One, they got out during COVID because they were getting paid their free money. And then two, now that prices have skyrocketed in a lot of, you say six to 7%, the prices have on average. going down, but yes, go ahead. Yeah, but there's all, uh, I mean, I also would say that, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but like in certain markets, uh, inflation's much higher and in certain markets, it's probably lower, right? right. And my point is, my, my point is, is that, are people getting back in the job market because one, they can't get their free unemployment money anymore. And two, prices have gone up and they've got to be able to pay bills and figure things out. And so they've jumped back into the market. Is that how the balance of that has has occurred? I mean, that seems elementary but and commonsensical, but I don't know if that's true or not. Well, okay, well, let me throw in a third thing. Some people, the 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 unemployment rate is is really the rate of people who can't get jobs who want jobs. And that's a key point, the want jobs. Some people have simply said, you know what? I'm done. I'm opting out of the labor force. So for older people, they retired a little earlier than they thought. And instead of retiring to a big house, they decided to, you know, get that sailboat that they always wanted to live on that's a little cheaper than than a house and and live there. Uh, So so the boomers are retiring earlier, younger than, than we all thought. The other thing is a lot of young people who would who would have been entering the job market decided, you know what? Times are a little rough. I'm going to I don't really feel like working it. I don't know what I want to do. I'm going to go to grad school or I'm going to move back in with my parents right. just for a little bit cuz cuz they got used to living in that situation during the pandemic. 
They left school. It was a pandemic. So they figured out a lifestyle that didn't involve a job and they're extending that a little bit more. And so, so part of that low unemployment is unclear because how many people left the labor force? We don't really know. The data that the media doesn't want to tell you, they don't tell you. And, uh, you know, and on and on. You could take almost every piece of data and pick it apart. So you just have to use judgment. Like many companies are reporting record profits. Doesn't mean things are great. A rising interest rates hurts the economy. That's a fact. A bad stock market hurts mm -hmm. the economy. That's a fact. And we've experienced both of those. But let's just take interest rates for a second. Okay. To get a mortgage on a house, it's like between six and six and a half percent right now. Well, guess what? In 2007, 2006, when more people were buying houses than ever, interest rates were between seven and eight percent or seven and nine percent. Right, so it's all perspective, right? <laughs> right. It's all perspective. We were at zero percent. We were like drinking the fire hose on money when interest rates were at zero percent for half the last decade. Now, I don't know what's good or what's bad, high interest rates, low interest rates, there's different opinions. But one of the reasons the Fed, Federal Reserve is raising interest rates as aggressively as they are is because we're, we are simply not in a financial crisis right now and they're reloading their ammunition so that next time we are in a financial crisis, we can cut rates. We were at negative interest rates before. You can't save the economy if you're at negative interest rates. You have no ammo to cut interest rates. So they're building up and maybe there will be a recession. Probably there'll be some sort of recession, but who knows? And so I just want to, I just want to put that in perspective that everybody who says doom and gloom, not doom and gloom. And it's definitely not doom and gloom. Things might be shaky and we might be in a recession, but let's look at the brighter side of things. Some things have never been better. So computer technology continues to follow Moore's law. Computers double in power every 18 months. But that also fuels innovation in biotech, in renewable energy, in AI, in crypto, in robotics, in manufacturing, like, you know, genomics. These are industries that are now experiencing exponential growth because of the prior exponential growth of computers have now fueled idea generation and innovation in these new industries. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for a cure for cancer, we've never been closer than we are today. If you're looking for uh, renewable energy that powers your house off the grid permanently, we've never been close. I mean, solar panel efficiency improves something like 4X every year. So we're at a great time in history where a lot of technology and innovation in medicine, energy, science, computer science, AI, all of this is happening. The financial system, financial innovation, all of this is happening right now, which buffers incredibly the effects of any negativity in the economy. Now take inflation. So are you saying, hold on, are you saying that we've never had this many buffers in place? And so had this been 20 years ago, maybe we'd be in a much worse position. But because we have all these buffers, because of the innovation from computers has led to all of these other industries growing exponentially in this moment, that this is almost a buffer from us being in some kind of massive recession or even a depression. Absolutely. Like, I, I don't like the word capitalism because capitalism, again, this is a history thing. Capitalism comes from who, who invented the word capitalism? Karl Marx. And what he was trying to show was the opposite of communism. So capitalism, his philosophy, his view of the philosophy of capitalism is that 
the world is dominated by the people who accumulate as much capital as possible and they make subservient the people who don't accumulate capital. But we don't live in a capitalist society. I don't view it that way. We live in an innovationist society. So when you create innovation, you're going to create jobs, you're going to create wealth, you're going to create opportunities, not just for yourself, but for your employees, your shareholders, your customers. Think about how much wealth Google has created for their customers. So if I'm yeah. like a small mom and pop cupcake store, I could advertise cupcakes in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'll make more money. So the innovate innovation is not just, you know, send, you know, people talk about income inequality, but it's not just about like, oh, Jeff Bezos is on top and everyone else is on the bottom. There's more wealth spread among more people than ever before. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes 
to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We had a, an apparel company reach out to us recently, and they're in the southeastern United States, right? But because they have a website, they're not a regional apparel company anymore. In fact, they're doing more sales online than their brick and mortars, which 50 years ago, it was all brick and mortar, right? And now they're a national company. And because of that opportunity, from what I'm understanding you're saying is, like, we have a bigger runway to continue growing, even if we hit bumps along the way. Right. And even inflation, you know, so it's like now we're getting to the heart of the matter of what caused the current problems we're having. Everybody got worried about inflation. And so the Federal Reserve started raising rates. And what does raising rates do? Raising rates makes it A, harder to borrow money to fund a business. So fewer yes. businesses get funded. And B, when you're making investment decisions, your savings account now returns 4% instead of 0%. T-bills might return 6%, whereas a hedge fund might return 8%. So better to keep your money in T-bills. So when rate, interest rates are high, to safer choices earn more money than uh, the stock market, or they earn almost as much money, or they earn, when you compare risk-reward, they might be better invest investments. So fewer people invest, so that creates a bear market and inflation goes down. But what they're doing is, again, it's like curing a disease by killing the patient. Like, yeah, the patient doesn't have a disease anymore if they're dead. So the Federal Reserve is using this old school thinking. And by the way, I'm not saying they're stupid. They're doing it for a very smart reason, but they may be doing too much because I don't know why. Well, maybe they don't care, but uh, right. they're killing the patient to stop the disease when they're not even sure if their diagnosis is correct. So I spoke hmm. to um, a deputy governor of the Fed. Um, this was in April, 2020. And I asked them, don't you think cutting interest rates and, and increasing the money supply could increase inflation. And he said, no. In fact, what keeps us up at night is we're worried about deflation. Like, the, he said, no matter how much money we put out there, quietly, the U.S. economy has been deflating and experiencing deflation. Because think about it. An iPhone keeps getting better and better. Computers keep getting better and better. But they don't cost more. That's deflation. Right, the you, the amount of quality you're getting for a per dollar is going way down because of technology increases, and the dollar is so strong versus every other currency that it keeps the dollar strong. It makes the dollar a dollar strong means there's deflation. A dollar weak means there's inflation. So when they print a lot of money, that means the dollar gets weaker, and they pray for inflation. They were praying for inflation just a few years ago. Well, they got it. They got the inflation they wanted, or did they? Because think about it. Oh. It costs more to build a house. Is that because they dropped a lot of money on the economy? Or is it because for two years during the pandemic, 
nobody was cutting down trees. The lumber business shut down. So there was no wood to build houses. And so, of course, the cost to buy a house inflated. A lot of components of inflation were because there simply was nobody trying to get more of X during the pandemic. And then you throw on top of that the war with Russia and Ukraine, you know, that stops <clears throat> all the exports of wheat, oil, all the all the natural resources of that area of the world, you know, so that starts to inflate. Meanwhile, China has continual shutdowns for COVID. So it turned out the entire world was dependent on China. We didn't know this five years ago, but now we know it. Tower World was dependent on China for everything from pharmaceuticals to computers to clothes to whatever. And so now that's a several year process of changing supply lines and shipping lanes so that it's not all coming from China. And people are heavily at work at this. So if you had done nothing, inflation still would have gone down because industries have opened up, supply chains are changing. It takes time, but you know. Fortunately, the economy is still growing. Innovation is still happening. The best way to fight inflation is to make sure innovation happens. That's the best way. Not, not kill the patient, but love the patient. That stops inflation. And so that's well, I mean, this is yeah, this is what we talk about with um when we talk to to business owners or people that are marketers. Like what you're saying is literally a metaphor for the way people need to act right now in marketing their business. Which is, yeah. this is a time to innovate, which means go out, spend, and do more to get market share while everybody else is sort of in the corner sucking their thumb, being scared to death to make a move, right? Absolutely. Because let's take investing. Investing in stocks is almost like a, an analogous to investing in anything else, but in this pure kind of stock market form. So whether you're investing in marketing or investing in yourself or investing in, in starting a business, Let's just look at it in terms of, of stocks for a second. When there's a bull market, it's good to buy. When markets, when stocks are going up, it's a good time to buy stocks. Why is that? Because bull markets often last for a long time. And so if a right. stock is at $10 today, there's a good chance it'll be at $12 next year and $14 the year after. But a bear market, like we just experienced, is a very special time to invest in stocks because you get opportunities for once to not feel like you're gambling. So every time you buy a stock, it's a gamble. Stock can go up, can go down. You're betting on the company continuing growth. You're betting that it's not a fraud, the whole thing. But when you have a bear market, sometimes you have weird situations where, oh my gosh, this company is trading for less value than if you simply liquidate all its buildings and, and you know shut the business down. So that, of course, is a great investment. That's an extreme case, but that's that's what that's Benjamin Graham in his famous book, Security Analysis, written in the 30s, that Warren, it was like Warren Buffett's Bible for investing. That's the kind of analysis Ben Graham would recommend people do. Look only for no-brainers. No and he was saying this because he was in investing during the Depression, where there were a lot of no-brainers, companies that were trading less than their liquidation value. Now, and I imagine that everybody probably thought during the Depression that things are never going to come back to normal again. Things are never going to grow again. Things are never going to be at a higher point than they were before the depression. Like, and, and that's the scarcity mindset, at least, you know, that I look at. Yeah. Right. Like you feel like if things go down today, they're certainly going to go down tomorrow. Like that's your, you're the best predictor of tomorrow is what happened today. So even psychologically, like I used to day trade 20 years ago, if I had a down day, 
I had to overcome the overwhelming feeling that I'm probably going to have a down day tomorrow because it's just psychological. Right. You know, but right now we have this opportunity where some things are no-brainers. Like, okay, take crypto. FTX was this major crypto exchange in in it was unregulated. It was in the Bahamas. It was run by like some 25-year-old sex cult, whatever. And of course, I'm not saying I could have predicted that FTX was going to collapse, but okay, it collapsed. But then I started to ask myself, well, what's happening because of this collapse? Well, all these people are going on CNBC, Charlie Munger, Jamie Dimon, the head of JP Morgan, Nouriel Rabini, this insane, you know, pessimist uh, on the economy who's who's right every time there's a recession and they forget about it every other year. And they were all saying, okay, crypto's immediately going, Bitcoin's immediately going to zero. And so you had a stock like Coinbase fall from 200 to 30, or maybe at that time it fell from 100 to 30. So crypto wasn't going away. I would just look at the data. Every day, there are more Bitcoin wallets made than the day before. There's literally more users of Bitcoin every day than the day before. So of course, Coinbase is not going out of business. They had $6 billion cash. They, the CEO, which is an audited, regulated company, would show his financial sure. statements. There's no issue. Yeah, they're publicly traded. They can't get away with what Sam Bankman-Fried was doing. Yeah, they're they're publicly traded and they're a stock ex or no, and they're an exchange. So right. they're regulated by all sorts of regulators. So at when it goes from 80 to 30 in a few weeks because of FTX's collapse, okay, that you can say this is probably not gambling, this is investing. It's trading cheaper than it is compared to its its competitors and it's the biggest one out there. So and, and not only that, the customers are FTX, they need to put their money somewhere. They're going to probably put some of it in Coinbase. So not only did they go down too far, but their business is probably going to improve and crypto is not going to zero. There's more Bitcoin wallets every day than the day before. And that's one metric among many I can use. So of course, Coinbase, I don't want to say complete no-brainer, but it doesn't feel like gambling. Like if you're playing poker and you're dealt two aces, you're going to make a bet. You're not going to fold. This is a case where you're dealt like two aces or maybe the equivalent of two kings. You're not going to, okay. you're at least going to bet a little bit. And a lot of, a lot of no-brainers or almost no-brainers appeared in the market. Uh, I've never been a fan of the stock Tesla, and uh, I, you know, I've bought into all the hype. Elon Musk, this I read, you know, I had on Ashley Vance on my podcast who who wrote the book Elon Musk, which was a a, a great biography. But I've never been a fan of the Tesla stock. I didn't understand how to value it. But at some point, when it goes from two hundred to one hundred twenty. And the reason is because a lot of people don't like Elon Musk's tweets. That's and by the way, now it's it, when it was at 120, it was trading as if it was Ford Motor Company. You know, it was as cheap as Ford Motor Company in terms of its right. price over earnings ratio. Okay, this is not gambling anymore. This is a calculated bet. You might lose on calculated, you know, investments, but it doesn't. It's not like you're flipping a coin. It's like now I have a reason. Be interested. So okay, went from one to I wrote about it. I'm I could I'm not saying this in hindsight. Like I wrote about it when it was at 120 or 130. It went up to 180. I don't know where it is now. And now to me, because I never was a fan of the stock, now it's probably a gamble again. I don't know. But bear markets are certainly times to put money to work in higher in higher probability situations than in bull markets. Bull markets are only high probability because they last long and things go up in bull markets. But bear markets is when you could find super high probability situations. 
And that goes for starting a business. Microsoft, Hewlett Packard, Apple all started in recessions. So, you know, they, they started because of demand and not because of the economy. And that's what you have to look at too. This is a, I know I'm talking a lot here. This is the final thing that I want to say about this. The economy is not that important. Demand is more important. And, you know, what, what's a recession? Oh, the economy didn't grow by 3%. It, it grew by negative 1%. It went 1% down. It's not a big number. Yeah. So in innovative industries, demand rules, not the economy. And that's, I, I never look at the economy when, when starting a business, unless like everybody's saying capitalism is going to fail, which happens in it. People say that in every recession, that period lasts like a month or two, and then it's over. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at tmobile.com slash now. Let's go back to the financial crisis of 2008. Yeah. How did you look at that as an entrepreneur or an investor or both? What moves did you sit on the sidelines for three years and just say, hey, I'm going to uh, hold my money and I want to keep safe? Or did you make moves during that time? What did you do that you take from that lesson? I mean, of course, yeah, you were around in 87 and, um, you know, we had a semi. You were I'm 55, then. but now. Uh, you were around in 99, 2000 when there was a little tech bubble that burst and all that stuff. So, but uh, what did you do during that particular downturn? Okay. And great yeah. question. And I was scared. Can I use a, a bad word? I was scared shitless uh, in 2008, 2009. Yeah. Because first off, I was going on CNBC quite a bit and I was the only optimist ever going on. Like I would debate Nuriel Rabini and everybody would laugh at me. I mean, there was a period where they stopped having me on because I was just too optimistic. And <laughs> really, I remember one time I left the studio and my mom calls me and my mom's like, maybe you shouldn't smile so much when the stock market is down so much. And I'm like, but this is the best time to smile because this is when the opportunity is. It's the only time when there's opportunity, like this kind of opportunity. But I was right. scared because you can't not be scared when every day people are saying capitalism's over, you know, Citibank or Citigroup's going to go bankrupt. Goldman Sachs is is already bankrupt, and they're not telling people. Like this is what people were whispering to me, and I was like, "Are people right? Like I don't know." But at the same time, you know, I was investing, and and I was investing. I tend to do this. I, I was going broke, and I was investing. 
Like I, the only way to make money is to put some money to work. And I, I would diversify heavily and, but I was, I was, I had just bought a house. I was getting a divorce. So I was having a, a some personal, and this was a long time ago too. It was before several businesses I've started since. And so I was teetering on the brink, but I also knew I have to put any remaining money I have to work. And now I wasn't shooting for the moon on anything, but I was, I'll tell you what I, specifically I was doing. I was buying what's called closed-end funds, and I won't explain what they are, but they during bear markets, they were paying like 15 to 20% dividends. So you can never, in normal times, you can never get a dividend like that. Eventually what happens is these, and people could Google closed-end funds. Eventually they go back up and the dividends aren't as great, but you get the huge dividends and you get capital returns when they go back up after the, and they're, they're basically just collections of municipal bonds. So I would look up the rules of each state. When can this state go declare bankruptcy? Oh, never. They're not allowed to declare bankruptcy. Or in the case of California, they have to first fire every single teacher and every single policeman, and then they can declare bankruptcy. So they're never going to declare bankruptcy. They're not going to default on their bonds. Uh, and, and, and meanwile, you had very big analysts Meredith Whitney would go on CNBC saying California is going bankrupt. Just look at the California state constitution. They can't go bankrupt. And, you know, so I would buy these closed in funds yielding huge amounts, but also I invested in private companies because private companies, you don't see their value every day. Like, oh, here's a company that's going to ride the wave of Facebook growth. Facebook was kind of just, you know, in its beginning years then, oh, here's a Facebook agency that helps other companies, you know, do advertising on Facebook. Okay. I'm going to invest in yeah. that. It's a private company, but I don't, that means I don't have to look at it every day on the stock market and feel depressed, but I would call the CEO and, he's like, and say, do you have enough money to last two years just in case? And he's like, we're profitable. Why do I need even, yes, we have the money, but B we're profitable. And, and C our companies, our, our clients are switching to Facebook because it's cheaper ads in a recession. So, you just look for those spots that are innovative and growing exponentially. You put your money there, you shut your eyes and don't look at it. And hopefully you can survive the three, four, five, maybe 10 years it takes for these dreams to come true. And then you look at it and okay. So sometimes I couldn't afford to do that, but I did as much as I possibly could. And I was scared every day. I would not look at the value of my portfolio. I was scared to death. <laughs> Well, I mean, so again, because we talk a lot of marketing on this podcast, it's the same thing. How are you supposed to grow your business if you're not going to invest in marketing in a, in a time in the economy where ad rates are actually going down and people are spending less money because ad rates are now ad rates are going up because people are spending less money. You can get more market share. You can, it doesn't mean you're going to make the same amount of profit you would maybe two years ago, but you're going to get enough of market share. So when we do come out of this, you're ahead of the game, you're ahead of your competition. That's literally a fact of how it works. And yeah. so many people right now are scared to death and they're like, well, we just got to cut the budget. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, that's your choice. I get it. But well, I, well, I think you, it's shocking. Let, let me ask you, Phil, because it seems to me investing in marketing is, you, you, there's a spectrum. There's people, there's the kind of companies that buy Super Bowl ads and they hope for the best. And then there's the kind of people who say, okay, I'm going to 
invest in 20 different ways and I'm going to get accurate data yeah. on how much go. the cost of acquisition is, what's the lifetime value of a customer. You know, there are metrics you can use. Uh, if I put $100 on Facebook, I get $120 worth of lifetime value. You know, a customer lasts for so many months so that I know, right. you know, when I need to keep going. Like you, you can use data to eliminate your, like every, in every dollar you spend, you're spending for a reason that's a dream, but then you dreams have risks. So then your, your, your entire job after that, 99% of your job is to remove the risk. So you remove the risk in marketing by understanding the data. Okay. Right. Okay. What's the lifetime value of a customer and how much, if it's $200, I could spend a hundred dollars to get that customer. Mm. Okay. Where do I spend a hundred? Well, I know the past 20 times I put money on Facebook, a hundred dollars got me $200 worth of customers. So I'll do it. You, it seems like you could eliminate the risk very easily in a bear market because like you said, rates are cheaper. So you could do more experiments to get more data. I wish everybody was thought that way or had that mindset. Uh, I'll give you an example. We worked with a pretty big apparel company. And I, I mean, they were an emerging company, right? Probably a Lululemon competitor, but about, uh, I'd say a 10th of their size. And then they came to us and they said, hey, we want to spend hundred thousand dollars and we want to get a million dollars in return and i said why where'd you come up with that number they said well we we typed it in on a spreadsheet and i went uh yeah i know i can i can say you should get a hundred million then like why why just stop it a million like you should get a hundred million for a hundred thousand yeah. dollars and i said well let us do the analysis based on your data based on what ads are working, all this stuff. And then we also figured out their lifetime value of their customer, I think was like $92, right? And so we went in and we did work for them for like three months and we reorganized all their data and analytics, marketing to data analytics. Uh, on their ad spend, they got 35% increase in sales from their ad spend and their lifetime value of their customer went from $92 to $190. And they told us that that wasn't good enough because we didn't get $10 million. And I said, but this is the market. We can build on this number, but you just you had a 35% increase on ad spend. Your lifetime value of your customer went from $92 to $190. And, and you're basing this on an arbitrary number you just made up in your head. And they couldn't answer it. It's that shocking. that is honestly that is honestly 75% of the businesses that we come in contact with. And I'm not talking about small businesses. I'm talking about multi-million dollar businesses. And so, and so everybody not... in marketing, everybody in marketing right now, James, is looking for a get rich quick pill. And and that doesn't exist. It's it's a lie to be telling more, uh, business owners that that exists. It doesn't exist. The only thing that exists is a risk elimination marketing system, right? Obviously, I've written a book on it, but that's not the point. You can do it. You can work with a lot of different people and show that kind of stuff. You got to eliminate risk of, the, of your investment, and then you got to build and, and optimize month after month on that. It's hard work. But you don't. No one wants the hard work. Just like no one wants to invest when the economy's bad. No, it's true because then, you know, fear and hope rule their thinking on either side. But the great thing about marketing versus investing in the stock market is that there's data. You could really fine tune the data. Like, um, you know, it's a, you know, and 20 years ago, you couldn't really fine tune the data. There wasn't enough data, there wasn't enough sources of data. And now you can. 
And it's not that it's not that hard to figure out the lifetime value of a customer. It's not that hard to figure out which media gets you more customers or which marketing strategy. Oh, do you retarget this site's customers to, you know, with your on Facebook or on Google or which site is the one best one to retarget? Yeah. Like now you could really experiment very quickly with very small budgets. You can oh. You're you're hundred percent right. The ability to experiment in a economic way is a thousand times better than it was five years ago. A thousand times better. But again, people are all short. I mean, so many business owners are short sighted. That's their prerogative. They have the right to be short sighted. I don't. That's up to them. I just think it's crazy to see all this stuff constantly. And like, you know, I, I, yeah, I should have done this earlier. But one of the things I thought about as you were kind of talking, we were working through this conversation, is like. I think it'd be important for people to know the companies you have invested in. Like you're an early investor in Slack. Like you've invested in some massive unicorns. If you're willing to share some of those sure. over the last, you know, 10, 15 years that that you're willing to talk about, I, I'd love for people because I, I think people need to understand it's like these are the time to go fishing because the fish are, are going to be biting and it you don't even have to put bait on your hook. You can just like throw your cast out and, and find something and, and get rewarded for it uh, down the road. So and, like, and by the some way, some of the stuff that you've invested in, I'd be, I'd be curious for people, to, uh, for people to know how sure. you've looked at that and who you've invested in. Sure. And like the thing, the, the thing about investing is like Warren Buffett says, invest what you know. And look, he's the best investor on the planet. So I have to respect what he says. I don't invest in what I know. Um, my whole point is I'm never going to really know an investment as well as the founder and CEOs of the companies I'm invested in. So what I try to do is two things. One is what industries out there are growing exponentially? Because if you invest in a couple of companies, some of them might go to zero. But if, if, if an industry is growing exponentially, there's room for lots of competitors and they're all going to grow. And eventually they're going to find their wave where everybody wants to buy them and they'll do well. So like, you know, at the very beginning of the Great Recession, I invested in a company called Buddy Media. And this is just an example where, where of, of a prior investment. But Buddy Media was in the, the Facebook ad agency business. And then they became a software as a service. So, oh, you're Pepsi Cola. You want to have some quizzes on your, on your corporate page on Facebook or whatever. Here's the platform for it. And so I knew... I loved Facebook so much. This is back in 2007. I loved Facebook so much that I figured, okay, this is like a mini internet and everything that worked on the internet and there's many internet agencies out there is going to work on the mini internet of Facebook. And I would go on CNBC and, and I remember the day Facebook was offered a billion dollars by Microsoft and Mark Zuckerberg said no. And I wrote an article in the Financial Times and I said, listen, Facebook's going to be worth $100 billion one day. And CNBC, they were just laughing at me. Well, they had me on five years later when Facebook IPO'd and IPO'd at $100 billion and they actually apologized. It's one of the few times that's wow. ever happened. And But but Buddy Media, I, uh, not only was it in an exponentially growing industry, social media, but my co-investor was Peter Thiel, the first investor in Facebook. So I figured, okay, I've de-risked this. And I knew the CEO. He had successfully exited two other companies, um, golf.com. And I, I think his first company was called Students Advantage. So 
how much more can I de-risk myself? I'm co-investing in a Facebook-related company with the first investor in Facebook with a CEO who's exited his prior two companies. So boom, done. I wrote a check. And five years later, salesforce.com bought the company for $700 million. So that was a good success story. Uh, you know, more recently, I've recently invested in a solar power company. Uh, again, I have good co-invest. I always invest with co-investors who are smarter than me. That's rule number one, because I know if I can't do all the due diligence, they do all the due diligence and they've got all the PhDs working for them and whatever. So solar power is an exponentially growing industry. California's mandating it yeah. for 40 million people and other states and countries are starting to do so as well. Solar panel efficiency is growing so fast that you could start powering, you know, all the appliances in your home with, with solar power and then even make money selling energy back to the grid. So this is a, a beginning, I would say for the first time, it's a maturing industry, even though it's been around for a while, it's finally mature. So I invested in a solar power company. I, uh, uh, I've, I've invested in, you know, some crypto companies because, but I invest in the picks and shovels. So crypto is essentially rebuilding from scratch the entire global financial ecosystem. So I don't care about cryptos that uh, are used in games or whatever, but cryptos that are involved in very kind of detailed picks and shovels activities. Like how does one blockchain talk to another blockchain? There's cryptos there. So there's tokens there. So I, I invest in these. Um, I'm invested in, uh, uh, I'm trying to think I'm, I've got, um, well, you, I, I said this earlier, but you invest in Slack. Yeah. Slack, Slack, uh, was at a billion dollar valuation. And so that was a higher valuation than I like to do, but I exited, I exited pre IPO at like an $8 billion valuation. So it was okay. Um, okay. Here's another one. I'm invested in a company that is the, the leader in the industry for a particular kind of data storage. So storage is never like storing data is only going to get bigger and bigger every day. Like now you have to store, not only are you re legally required to store all your documents, if you're a big company or a law firm or whatever, but now you got to start storing 3d virtual realities and, you know, things that require extensive storage and, and a lot of needs. So so storage, I it's if you invest in a company with good management, they've done it before, good co-investors. So my co-investors are Benchmark Capital and Venrock, two of the best investors ever on the planet. Um, this the the CEO and management team has done a storage company before, and they're winning all the storage awards. So boom, I've de-risked as much as I could. Storage is an exponentially growing industry. I'm fine with that investment. And and on and on. So I so again, exponentially growing in industry. CEOs done it before, and co-investors who are smarter than me. And I feel like I've de-risked as much as I can. So altogether, I'm in oil companies, I'm in food companies, I'm in tech companies, crypto companies, AI companies, as many exponentially growing industries as I can diversify in, I'll do. Well, this is the whole point especially and thank you for sharing all that because if you're going to market right now you need to diversify how you market your business what james is telling you is basically a metaphor for how you need to be thinking about it and it's about not just saying you know what we're going to cut our budget we're going to spend money on digital ads 
Like, no, you go to where the customers are and they can be in a hundred different places. It doesn't mean all of them are going to work at a 10x rate. But if you're more diversified in spending and investing those dollars, then you're going to have success even in this market. And this is what I'm trying to scream and holler at people. I don't give a damn if you never talk to me, if you use another marketing agency and go spend all the money, that's what you should be doing right now. It just drives me nuts that everybody has such a scarcity mindset because again, and I know you kind of pushed back on this a little bit with me before, but like this is the time that the opportunistic and positive outlook people make the moves that make them a lot of money down the road. And, and by the way, Phil, I don't push back on that concept. I just push back on the concept that people need to know what's happening in the economy <laughs> because right. okay. A, no one really knows what's happening. It's never what it seems. And B, some of the greatest companies in history started in recessions or depressions. Yeah. So right. it's not a huge factor. The only thing that's a factor is that it's scary. And I admit, even now I'm, I'm afraid when people tell me capitalism is finally going to fail. Part of, a little part of me believes it when you hear it and the whole world's scared. So that that clamps down on money flow as well. All right, brother. Uh, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Hopefully you guys got a lot of value out of this. This is an opportunity moment, not a scarcity moment, even if it doesn't feel very comfortable. Sometimes yeah. I, I always go back to the quote, the quality of your life is in direct proportion to the amount of uncertainty you can comfortably tolerate. That's and the people quote. that and the people that uh, tolerate a lot of uncertainty right now in their the way they invest their dollars, whether it's in businesses, stocks, investments, or marketing, they're the ones that are going to win in the end down the road. So keep that in mind, and we will talk to you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.